There's got to be an explanation to all these UFO sightings, right? Hey, it's Stephen Diener, host of the Unidentified Alien Podcast. And whether you're new to the conversation or have been looking into it for years, you need to check out the fastest growing alien show out there, the Unidentified Alien Podcast, or UAP for short. There's a crazy amount of alien encounter stories out there from all over the world. And the beauty of it is that I bring them all to you and let you decide what you believe. Download and subscribe to UAP on any of the major podcasting platforms. And you can also find it on UAPpodcast.com. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast is being brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com. News Talk 850 WFTL presents Joyce Kaufman, No Restraint. Here's Joyce Kaufman. On this week's No Restraint Podcast, I'm going to talk about some of the things I talk about all the time, but I'm also going to take a bit of a trip down memory lane because it seems the older I get, the more I look back at the good old days. And they weren't all good, but it sure seems as though we had a much higher level of dysfunction, if you could call it that. I grew up in a time where America was coming into its own in such a real sense, we had finally banished the idea of one group of people enslaving another group of people right here in our own country. Seemed like that took a long time, but it was accomplished in the 60s with the civil rights movement. There were so many things happening as I was growing up, whether it was the change in music, whether it was just this understanding that politicians were by and large liars and cheats and more interested in retaining power than in actually governing for the betterment of the people. So there was a great deal of disillusionment and this time now seems very similar to the 60s and 70s that I lived through and I'm sure many of you did as well. I remember 33 and a half years ago when I decided that I was going to throw caution to the wind and return to a career doing radio. Now, people told me I was crazy. I had successful businesses. I was considered, financially at least, a success. But I was never happy doing any of the things that I had been educated and trained to do. In the back of my mind, there was always this desire. If I'm going to teach, I would like it to be on a grander scale than standing in front of a classroom. And if I'm going to write curriculum, I'd rather write copy that I would be able to share with large groups and do it through the airwaves. I loved radio. I still love radio because first and foremost, it's still an imaginative place to work. I could look like uh, Bridget Bardot, or I could be some sinister-looking, creepy lady with green hair. Nobody really knew at any given moment, but they got to know me, the person inside, the one who had very strongly held opinions. Not that my opinions have not changed over 30-plus years, They certainly have. Maturity and wisdom come with time. 
But one thing that I have noticed is my fundamental principles, the moral compass that was instilled in me by my mother, Aida, and my father, Herman, really never departed from me. I would push it aside. I would try to hide from what I knew was right, but it never left. And therefore, I kept returning to a belief that I owed something to the world, that my presence in America was more than fortuitous. There was a purpose. And whatever that purpose was, as a young person, I could be very grandiose about what I thought the purpose was. But as time has grown and gone by, I've realized that the purpose for each one of us could be very simple. But if we don't set about to accomplish it, we'll be pretty miserable. And if you look around, I see a lot of miserable people, people who are doing work that they don't enjoy, and in some instances, work that they know is not decent. They know it doesn't add to the social construct. As a matter of fact, criminality is really raging, not just among criminals, but among normal people who never would do things that they find themselves doing now. When you take music off the internet, it's still stealing, even though it's not the same as walking into a book or a record store, well, there are no records anymore, and actually stealing a hard copy of anything. You're still stealing personal and important product that an individual has a right to sell to you. But that's a show for another day. One thing I do know is some stories keep resurfacing. And I believe it's because we never really come to any strong conclusion about right and wrong in regards to these stories. One of the things that first insulted my intelligence when I came on the air on 1400 WFTL here in South Florida was Holocaust denial. It was amazing to me. I came from a very urbane New York background, and there was no Holocaust denial. There were people who hated Jews. There were people who hated blacks. There were people who hated anybody that wasn't like them. But nobody denied World War II, and thanks to Eisenhower, nobody really could deny the Holocaust. He insisted that the United States military go into these concentration camps, these liberated death camps, and take photographic evidence of everything that they found there. And when I was going to school, you would see those images. They would show you the Birkenwald and Auschwitz and the liberation of these camps and the skeleton-like people and the mass graves. So we knew the Holocaust had happened. We were still wrestling with the whys and the hows and the where was the rest of the worlds. But we knew it happened. And Holocaust denial has come back to haunt us. The fact that Israel expected worse from the International Court of Justice's ruling on Friday doesn't make it any better. It's still extraordinarily shameful because the misrepresentation of the ruling by Israel's enemies, 
And that's what you're hearing in the papers or reading in the papers and hearing on programs, and even by some of Israel's defenders, make it seem worse, more damning than it actually was. Hat tip Melanie Phillips, who always gets to the heart of a matter. The court did not give in to South Africa's demand that Israel had to stop its military operations in Gaza. Instead, it said that Israel must take all measures within its power to prevent the genocide. The very suggestion that Israel is considering a genocide is outrageous, and it's not evidenced by anything that I have seen or anybody else has seen or anything that was presented to the court. Israel's war in Gaza is intended to destroy Hamas and not to destroy the uninvolved Palestinians. And trust me, not all the Palestinians are uninvolved. They're not there to destroy people whose lives Israel has in fact gone out of its way to protect. This is a smear, yet again, against Israel, which is designed to harm it in the eyes of the world. And then they become weaker and their defenses against a truly genocidal group like Hamas are minimized. And since the court drew uncritically upon all the propaganda that Hamas produced or the United Nations produced supporting this smear, the court literally added or aided Hamas's onslaught. That's hard to believe. I thought it was a court of justice. The very same day that the court issued its ruling, evidence shows up and the UN is forced to examine what happened on October 7th and how the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, might have been involved. We now know that no fewer than 12 officials of UNRWA got fired after Israeli intelligence found that they had been personally involved in the October 7th pogrom. Not just observers, not just reporting on, but involved. The UK, the US, and some other Western countries are all suspending their UNRWA funding. It's about time. In addition, the monitoring group UN Watch has now uncovered evidence that more than 3,000 UNRWA teachers had celebrated the atrocities on the Telegram channel. So if you're going to bring a claim against Israel for defending itself against the genocide of the Jews that Hamas intended to pull off and its patron, Iran, that is in and of itself obscene. The Geneva or the Genocide Convention says that genocide involves, quote, the intent to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. That certainly does not apply to Israel on a number of counts. Israel has no intention to destroy the Palestinians of Gaza as such. It intends to kill the terrorists of Hamas, not uninvolved 
Palestinians, and not because Hamas are Palestinians, but because Israel is defending itself against their genocidal onslaught. Moreover, the Palestinians are not a discreet, national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, but as even their own leaders have acknowledged in the past, they're an indissoluble part of the broader Arab nation. They have no culture, no language, no religion that makes them distinct from that broader Arab nation. Many, if not most, of their ancestors in the last century immigrated into Palestine from neighboring states like Egypt and Syria. Their so-called Palestinian identity was forged in the 1960s, and it was done purely as a weapon of war to destroy Israel and to appropriate Jewish history as their own. And by this standard, they aren't covered by the Genocide Convention at all. On the ICJ, the one judge who dissented from the entire ruling was the Ugandan jurist Julia Sebutinde, who took the majority decision apart, and she got it absolutely right. In her dissent, she wrote, I am not convinced that all the above criteria for the indication of provisional measures have been met in the present case. In particular, South Africa has not demonstrated, even on a prima facie basis, that the acts allegedly committed by Israel and of which the applicant complains were committed with the necessary genocidal intent and that, as a result, they are capable of falling within the scope of the Genocide Convention. Unless there was a genocidal intent, she said, such acts simply constitute grave violations of international humanitarian law and not genocide as such. If such intent didn't exist, she said, acts such as South Africa was complaining about in Gaza, they simply constitute grave violations of international humanitarian law and not genocide. Hi, everybody. This is Adriana Trajani. I'm the host of You Are What You Read. I have the privilege of interviewing luminaries of our times about the books that shaped them from childhood until now. We get everybody from Sarah Jessica Parker to Kristen Hanna, Mitch Albom, Susie Essman, Craig Ferguson, Rain Wilson, Amor Tolls, you name it, they come, they share. New episodes of You Are What You Read drop every Tuesday on Apple, Spotify, or any major streaming platform wherever you listen to your podcasts. Accordingly, although the court has yet to consider whether Israel is committing genocide, she criticized it for failing to consider the issue of intent, even for this preliminary ruling. Moreover, she went on to say, I also must agree that any genocidal intent alleged by the applicant is negated by Israel's restricted and targeted attacks of legitimate military targets in Gaza, its mitigation of civilian harm by warning them through leaflets and radio messages and telephone calls of impending attacks, and its facilitation of humanitarian assistance. A careful examination of Israel's war policy and of the full statements of the responsible government officials further demonstrates 
the absence of a genocidal intent. And then perhaps most damningly of all, she wrote, regarding the statements of Israeli top officials and politicians that South Africa cited as containing genocidal rhetoric, a careful examination of those statements, read in their proper and full context, shows that South Africa has either placed the quotations out of context or simply misunderstood the statements of those officials. The vast majority of the statements referred to the destruction of Hamas and not the Palestinian people as such. Certain renegade statements by officials who are not charged with prosecuting Israel's military operations were subsequently highly criticized by the Israeli government itself. More importantly, the official war policy of the Israeli government, as presented to the very court, contains no indicators of a genocidal intent. In my assessment, she said, there are also no indicators of incitement to commit genocide. If the court ruling was shameful, the misinterpretation of it was even worse. Referring to the court's president, Joan Donahue, the BBC's international editor, Jeremy Bowen said, what the judge has said adds up to a victory for South Africa's lawyers and a defeat for Israel's. She didn't say you have to have a ceasefire because under international humanitarian law, under the right circumstances and within the legal framework, the war is legal and Israel, after all, was attacked. But what she is saying is the way that Israel conducts the war really has to change radically under these conditions. Israel has consistently said that its fight respects the laws of war. The judge's remarks indicate that the court does not agree. I think the Israelis will be outraged by the judgment, and the South Africans will be very happy that the case they made will be accepted by the court and that the case will now proceed. That is nonsense. Pernicious nonsense. While the ruling was intrinsically shameful, it most certainly was not a victory for South Africa, which had demanded that the court should order Israel to stop its military actions in Gaza. The court declined to do that, and it did not suggest that Israel was disrespecting the laws of war. And it most certainly did not say that Israel had to radically change the way it conducts the war. It said instead that Israel must take measures to prevent genocide. And since it's not committing genocide and has never had any intention of doing so, it needs to change nothing. Yet the undeniable implication of Jeremy Bowen's remarks was that Israel was committing genocide and now must stop. That was not just gross misreporting. Bowen displayed malice towards Israel by effectively parroting the Hamas South African blood libel. What a disgrace. Other media outlets repeated the same malevolent spin. However, on Sky News, Natasha Hausdorff, the redoubtable international lawyer and legal director of UK Lawyers for Israel, calmly and forensically debunked the false reporting that she said had also characterized some of Sky's contributions on the issue. The ICJ, she stated, had not ordered Israel to alter its conduct in any way. 
It had merely required Israel to comply with the Genocide Convention, and there was no evidence that it had not done so so far. Hausdorff also debunked another and particularly egregious media distortion. A number of outlets had claimed that the court had found the charge of against Israel of genocide to be plausible. In America, NPR reported allegations that South Africa is making against Israel, mainly that Israel is committing acts of genocide in Gaza, were in the least plausible. The leftist Israeli publication Times of Israel said the court had determined that South Africa's claim was plausible. Interviewing Hausdorff, Sky's Samantha Washington similarly referred to the court's majority finding of the, quote, plausibility of a genocide charge, end quote, against Israel. She tore it to shreds. She said the only issue the court has addressed in terms of plausibility is whether the rights claim fall under the convention, but it has not addressed the plausibility of whether there's been any breach of convention rights. Indeed, Clause 54 of the court's ruling reads, in the court's view, the facts and circumstances mentioned are sufficient to conclude that at least some of the rights claimed by South Africa and for which it is seeking protection are plausible. This is the case with respect to the right of the Palestinians in Gaza to be protected from acts of genocide and related prohibited acts identified in Article 3 and the right of South Africa to seek Israel's compliance within the latter's obligations under the convention. In other words, the International Court did not find plausible the idea that Israel had been committing genocide. It ruled instead that the Palestinians in Gaza had a plausible right to be protected under the Genocide Convention. That's a totally different matter. Hausdorff also pointed out the absurdity of the genocide claim. Even taking at face value the obviously exaggerated Hamas casualty figures, which make no acknowledgement that Israel has killed any terrorists at all in Gaza, nor acknowledges the unknown number of civilians killed by thousands of Hamas rockets that were aimed at Israel but fell short into Gaza itself, she said the ratio of civilians to terrorists killed by Israel at 1.8 to 1 was still the lowest in the world, with the global average in war being 9 to 1, and in America's wars in Iraq and Afghanistan between 3 to 1 and 5 to 1, to which Sky's Samantha Washington could only protest feebly that every aid agency and senior official whom she had interviewed spoke of Gaza's humanitarian disaster. But many wars are humanitarian disasters, including the most just of wars, which Israel's defense against genocide certainly is. The International Court is a political body and a showcase for political vendettas that are masquerading as law. The real problem is the United Nations, of which the International Court of Justice is part. The West takes the UN at face value as the self-professed champion of peace and justice in the world. It is not. It is the instrument of tyrants, dictators, terrorist sponsors, and other human rights abusers. Both the ICJ and the UN itself, 
which even now is furiously claiming that its genocide-supporting refugee agency, UNRWA, is performing an invaluable humanitarian role, should be treated with contempt. One has to wonder, though, why so many in the West, including so many Jews, are so keen to transmit blood libels against Israel. Sure, we all know about the leftist bias of the media, you know, the dominance of the anti-Israel narrative on the left, the role of intersectionality and Palestinian propaganda in the universities and so on and so on. But this genocide blood libel isn't just offensive. It isn't simply the product of malevolent international states and lazy sheep-like journalists. It isn't merely intended to damage Israel because of an ideological witch hunt against it. Something else is going on here. The genocide claim against the Jews of Israel is yet another form of Holocaust denial because it derives from the same reasoning by which Israelis are called Nazis. If you want to wipe the stain of the Holocaust from the world and shut the Jews up so that the very word anti-Semitism turns to ashes in their mouths, the way to do that is to deny the enormity of the Nazis' crime by pinning the Nazi label onto their Jewish victims. It's the same with genocide. Both the Palestinian Arabs and the West have an interest in hijacking the word genocide for their own purposes. The Palestinian Arabs do so because, first, they are led by a Holocaust denier, Mahmoud Abbas. He not only wrote a doctoral thesis denying the Holocaust, but is an avowed acolyte of Hitler's wartime ally in Mandate Palestine, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who undertook to exterminate every Jew in the Middle East if Hitler won the war. Second, the Palestinian Arabs repeatedly write the Jews out of their own history and pretend it's their own. And third, like the West, they are desperate to deny the reality of Jewish victimization. The Palestinian Arabs try to appropriate the Jews' own unique status as the most persecuted people in the history of the world by depicting them instead as uniquely vicious aggressors and oppressors. They want the Jews gone. And appropriating their history as victims and casting them instead as villains is certainly one way of doing it. And in this, they make common cause with the West, which wants the Jews out of their conscience out of their heads, and out of their way. Sticking them with the charge of genocide is a handy way of doing so. The ICJ ruling is but the latest evidence of the West's moral bankruptcy. I've been talking about moral bankruptcy for a long time, and I have seen it come to an ugly but necessary-to-face fruition after October 7th. Don't kid yourself. Hatred for Jews, as Tom Lehrer pointed out, is endemic and it's deep and it's not going away. So we have some tough choices to make. I've always said the Jews are the canary in the mine. And if they fall, and if Israel is destroyed 
by any of its Arab nations around it or by Iran, it's because we in the West have decided it's just not important enough to stand up. And I don't know about the rest of you, but there's a lot going on right now. And I believe if you send a canary into the mine and it dies from toxic fumes, you better put your gas mask on and you better prepare yourself to flee because you could be next. This was the No Restraint podcast, and I hope you will have others listen to it and then stay tuned for the next one. In the meantime, may God bless you, may God bless Israel, and may God bless the United States of America. See you again soon. The Joyce Kaufman Podcast has been brought to you by Code Red Roofers, South Florida's leading residential and commercial roof experts. Code Red Roofers, roofers that respond. Call 844-4-CODE-RED or visit coderedroofers.com.